Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're talking about, oh God, I forgot. Read three. <laughs> a, oh no, it's new, been too long. I, I'm in a, I know, I'm in a new place. We took last week off. Uh, we've moved officially. You can kind of see, maybe hear the echo if you're an audio listener that I'm in a new spot. Uh, And it's been a minute, uh, but we're talking about Creed 3 this week. Uh, We're also taking a look at Cocaine Bear, uh, the odd horror comedy from first-time Elizabeth director, Elizabeth director, first-time director Elizabeth Banks. Wow. Uh, We're talking about some trailers, some new things that are coming out uh, that we've seen since we were last on. Before we get to all that, we need to talk about the news. Our first story this week, uh, Warner Brothers acquires the film rights to Lord of the Rings. Which I think a lot of like Fairweather fans might think, oh, okay, yeah, the, the people that made the last Lord of the Rings thing are going to keep making Lord of the Rings things. But this is a little different. This is not necessarily what's happening. Uh, Andy, you want to kind of explain to the listeners what this is? Yes, this is kind of a complicated story. And uh, last week they had the uh, Warner Brothers Discovery earnings call. And one of the pieces of news is that they will be, quote unquote, revamping the Lord of the Rings franchise. That does not mean remaking that does not mean rebooting. Uh, they it seems like they're gonna make original films based set in the world, set in the lore, or, or explore explore other kind of mythologies of J.R.R. Tolkien that haven't been made. It's really unclear uh, and kind of a shocking thing because Lord of the Rings is such a, a treasured franchise, one of the most successful franchises in the last twenty years, and it's it's complicated because Amazon owns the the TV rights. But um, Warner Brothers New Line owns the film rights. And so you have different companies working t- uh, to make these properties. But th- they're going to look to make a, a series of films. It's not just going to be a w- one or two films. It's going to be a whole franchise that they're looking to start. Andy's absolutely right. Uh, keen viewers of prestige streaming television may remember when Amazon Prime was developing uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power over on their platform, and Warner Brothers HBO was working on uh, House of Dra- House of the Dragon uh, on HBO, both high fantasy shows, both spent like $100 million an episode. It's insane how much money they blew on those things, and for what it's worth, all the content's on screen. You could see every dollar on screen in those programs. But for some reason, it was weird to think that Warner Brothers technically has dibs on Lord of the Rings but Amazon's doing it, and Warner was having to compete with that, but no longer, at least in cinemas. Uh, it's also interesting that they apparently have kept Peter Jackson, uh, director of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, as well as the Hobbit trilogy, apprised of all of this. He says he and uh, longtime collaborator Fran Walsh, his wife, I believe, uh, and Philip Boyens have been uh, in the loop every step of the way. Jackson said, we look forward to speaking with Warner Brothers further to hear their vision for the franchise moving forward now from what i've heard uh warner wants jackson back at least in some capacity and they should right like even though the lord of the rings is a J.R.R. tolkien property everything everything visual about those films comes right out of peter jackson's head like he is the person who put the paint on the canvas yes it wouldn't be possible without tolkien that's what inspired jackson to make those films but even like you can even see the trappings of jackson's world and rings of power rivendell's in that show and it's still rivendell the white tree of gondor is exactly how jackson envisioned it so i think it totally makes sense that they want peter jackson to be involved what's a little concerning to me is hearing that they may want to do some kind of franchising like disney does with star wars and it's like oh oh god oh no <laughs> oh no. no yeah man uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's what I had heard that, that they want to try to chase like we want to do, you know, origin films and we want to talk about where these characters came from third age stuff, which Amazon is only doing second age, which is basically almost fan fiction leading up to the Lord of the Rings movies, right? That's the previous time it's got Galadriel in it. Like it's good, but it's not it's not like real, real pulpy like Tolkien would have written it, I think. Yeah, it it's in, it's going to be interesting to see what direction they go in, what characters and places, time periods that they choose to explore. Definitely smart bringing uh, Peter Jackson on in some sort of role. That, I was thinking what makes these movies so special is just the the sheer scope. Even in the small scenes, everything, and I've said this before, everything in those movies feels like, every scene feels like the most important scene in the movie. It, everything is so over the top. Everything is turned up to 11 and it's so exciting. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring is my favorite, and like I love the the first act. You know the the, fi- the discovery of the ring, the escape from the Shire, the being chased by the the Black Riders. All of this is very exciting stuff, and it, it it's got to have that moving into to new properties. You know, I'm always complaining about 
bad first acts or slow first acts, and, and I love the first act of Fellowship. Yeah, uh, the Lord of the Rings films may be, I mean, likely are the, the greatest fantasy films that have ever been made, uh, excluding the Hobbit trilogy. Just looking at the first three, right? We're talking about nearly $3 billion in revenue, 30 Academy Award nominations, and it walked away with 17, over half of them. Like, those films are a really big deal. So if you hear something about them coming to theaters, you hear about some other spinoff or something happening, you're going to know... Warner Brothers is behind it. And for what it's worth, I hope they take all that bluster they had about Amazon making the Lord of the Rings series and they take all the talent that they put into things like House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones and they pour it right back in to making something really spectacular. Clearly it's possible, but also we could get something like The Hobbit, which is good, but a bit more niche, right? Doesn't quite appeal to everybody much like Lord of the Rings did. So keep it here on off script for more. Um... Oh, and one more thing while I'm thinking about it. Uh, if you are a big Lord of the Rings fan, uh, Return of the King is returning to theaters this April. Like April 7th? Uh, it's the four-hour cut. It's the super extended <laughs> edition, man. Four hours, 11 minutes. <laughs> my my you, partner in crime, Christine, is a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and she wants to go see it. I'm like, I think you might be going alone. I, I, I don't know if I can, I can muster can't. the courage. It's so long, man. <laughs> I my my favorite, like I said, is the first one. I I would watch that in theaters any day. Mm. But even then, I like the the theatrical edition. Over, I don't really care for the extended editions. Yeah, some good personally. stuff in there, but that that runtime is brutal. But it's either here nor there. Our next story this week: Behavior Interactive partners with Bloomhouse and Atomic Monster for a Dead by Daylight movie. Now, if you don't play video games, you may have no idea what this means, but fortunately, I have an esteemed colleague who's very familiar <laughs> with the world of Dead by Daylight who's excited to report on this. Andy, what what is this for people who have no idea? Explain like we're five. Right, so Dead by Daylight is an asymmetrical horror game that pits four survivors against one killer. The survivors try to es escape uh, this realm or this trial uh, by repairing generators and opening gates and escaping. Meanwhile, the, the killer tries to, uh, you know, kill or slasher, kill off the, the team. And it you got to cooperate and you have to work together. And that, that's how it is. But the, the big thing about it, the reason it, it's really popular is that the game has licensed a lot of familiar properties. So the killers can be people like Michael Myers, uh, Hellraiser, the Cenobite, um, Freddy Krueger—just like the, these well-known horror icons—and now, in kind of a weird twist of fate, the game that's based on film franchises is now being turned into a film. So it looks like it—you know—they're going to stick with the the lore. Survivors get uh, trapped in some sort of hellscape that they have to escape from. They have to evade a killer, and there's going to be a bunch of mythology and we'll see if any if any licensed characters show up it is funny like seeing the creative handshake across properties like dead by daylight is produced from horror films right this idea of some kind of slasher or monster or being in the woods or the warehouse and a group of survivors who are totally helpless that have to try to use their wits and cooperate to escape that gets turned into a video game with an additional set of rules around it like this uh, the trappings of this like kind of ethereal realm where they have to try to overcome and use fix generators to fix gates to get out of these levels. And now this is getting turned back into a movie, right? Like back into a cinematic experience. It reminds me a lot of like Stranger Things on Netflix being inspired by Stephen King's It from the 80s. And then when the It remake comes out in like 2013 it is directly inspired by Stranger Things on Netflix. Like, it's this weird bootstrap effect to get to something really tremendous. But that being said, Dead by Daylight is pretty good stuff to kind of dig in and make a horror movie. I mean, there's there's a ton of different directions. You could either chase, like, one down, and you could just say, hey, there's one kind of killer chasing four kind of survivors. Or you could do, like, a Cabin in the Woods thing and have, like, eight. You know, you could have 16 in there because the game features <laughs> so many. And for what it's worth, if you've never played it, uh, it is very popular in its circles. It's popular on Twitch. It's a popular game to stream. And it's good stuff. Like, yeah, my, Andy's right. Like, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger. The, the licensing available in the Dead by Daylight game is outstanding. So the idea of a movie coming with even a few of these properties mixed in is tremendous. Being able to tap into the Bloomhouse, like, stall of, here of I was going to say heroes, villains, uh, is great. The rogues gallery. <laughs> yeah. Having James Wan attached is huge. Like this is a great partnership 
uh, worst case scenario, we get a mid movie. Best case, we get something really tremendous. Yeah, I think this can definitely work. It's going to need uh, two things, I think. You're going to have to create a lot of suspense. That's what kind of happens in the game is you have to work. You have to stand still and kind of be a sitting duck while you repair these generators and uh, play hide and seek with the killer, basically. Um, and it's also going to need some kind of uh, lore development because the whole thing is there's this kind of mystical entity that that creates these situations and brings the killer in and the survivors in. So you're going to have to create some creepy, like Evil Dead-esque kind of backstory for all this. And I, I think it can really work. Yeah, like there's not only can it work, like this is easily the launch of a franchise if that first movie does well. And based on the hype for the game, it probably will. So that's what's going on. Uh, I do think it's worth mentioning uh, a bit of what I've heard part of the reasoning for this kind of thing happening, a video game adaptation, is going to be the success of recent video game adaptations. It's easy to look at the cinematics, right? Sonic, the upcoming Mario movie, even Detective Pikachu, but those are childish. Uh, the Last of Us on HBO is killing it. And like, that's a hugely successful video game property that has been properly adapted into something that is doing really well. Only going up. Heard their last episode of like 8 million viewers. So for what it's worth, not only do I think this is a good idea, we're probably going to get more video game adaptations. So keep it here on our script for more. Um, our next story, our last one before we move into Creed 3. Uh, Star Wars. Some rough news out of some rough news out of a galaxy far, far away. Uh, apparently, Kevin Feige and Kat, Patty Jenkins' Star Wars movies have been shelved, and Taika Waititi's pending Star Wars film is not only still pending, but he wants to be in it. Not that weird for Taika because he likes to be in his own movies, but man, it really seems like Disney cannot make a freaking Star Wars movie. We total shambles. To, Star Wars is total in shambles. shambles. Yeah, uh, they have not made a film since. 2019's uh, Rise of Skywalker that kind of was the nail in the coffin uh, of Star Wars films. And of course the pandemic kind of threw off a whole lot of uh, film production, but it's, it seems like they just don't know what direction to go in and they keep kind of choosing a film project here or there and then it all gets shelved. So Patty Jenkins Rogue Squadron movies getting shelved, whatever Kevin Feige was working on. The only things that are more in development are... Uh, Damon Lindelof is working with a group of writers on a new film. And then Taika Waititi is also maybe doing one as well. It's unclear. Uh, they have set aside the date of December 2025 for the release of a Star Wars film. That's a couple of years away. So there there is enough time to get a script written and, and produce that film. But man, that, that will be six years since Star Wars film was made, which is kind of crazy considering how much money they can make off the franchise. Longtime subscribers of the pod probably remember us talking about this in the past. Uh, these are not the only two Star Wars projects that have been shelved. Uh, Ryan Johnson was supposed to do uh, three Star Wars movies, and that has not really gone anywhere. Since then, he's developed Glass Onion for Netflix and is working on his next murder mystery. He's making Poker Face over on Peacock for NP NBC. He has expressed interest in continuing to do this. He still says he wants to make Star Wars movies, but Disney is nowhere to be found. Like they are just not talking to him. It seems are not willing to coordinate him with him to make it happen. Uh, the creators of HBO's game of Thrones, David Benioff and DB vice were supposed to make a star Wars movie that has not happened. Uh, Kevin Feige, the, the, the lead of, of Marvel, which I know is listed here. He's supposed to make one and he's off. He's the guy running freaking Marvel and they're not having him do it. Patty Jenkins had this video of her in front of a freaking jet to announce the X-Wing Rogue Squadron movie that they ran oh, at D23 God. or something. That's now not happening. Like, they cannot get it together over there. Like, so I see this story and I think, oh, this is a bummer. But at the same time, like, it's literally old news. We've, we've already seen films be announced and then dashed. Right now, the soonest possible we seem to have on the, on the table is holiday 2025 for a Star Wars film in theaters, and that's supposed to come from the director of two episodes of Disney Plus's Miss Marvel, which, like, I'm not going to say isn't good. I just, hearing that, <laughs> hearing that bio, I don't have it a lot of confidence. It does not instill confidence. No, like, it's killing me. You'd think they'd be getting the best and brightest, right? Like, why don't they hire Joseph Kaczynski off a of Top Gun Maverick to do an X-Wing movie? That's a movie. Like, now we're talking. And instead, we're still talking about Taika Waititi doing a cameo in his own joint? What's happening over there? <laughs> what are they doing? Like I said, in, 
in shambles. But also, shambles. it seems like Disney is really focusing on their TV properties. They've announced a ton of Star Wars shows. That's true. That are going to be coming out. Uh, there's uh, the Acolyte. There's the Skeleton Crew. There's uh, I don't know some some other stuff. But they seem to really be focusing on mediocre TV <laughs> over <laughs> over films r- right now. But Star Wars Celebration, which is a big Star Wars conference, comes up. Uh, next month and they'll probably make some bigger announcement for shows and for films then uh we'll see if they they get a plan uh of any kind together it's true it's worth mentioning uh yes the reason they're investing heavily in star wars shows is because the mandalorian came out and blasted them into like 26.5 million disney plus subscribers in its first six weeks of its run now given that was season one that was helmed by John Favreau. And believe it or not, a couple of those episodes, I think at least the season finale of season one was directed by Taika Waititi. My man has directed Star Wars content. So he is at least kind of in that realm of being able to do it here. But they had originally announced we were supposed to be getting an Avatar movie from, from James Cameron and a Star Wars movie every other alternating holiday for the next like six years. We're supposed to get Avatar 2, then we're supposed to get Star Wars. Then we're supposed to get Avatar 3, then we're supposed to get Star Wars. And now we've gotten Avatar 2, which is bananas to me that that came before a new Star Wars movie is hot off the presses. And now we just have kind of nothing going into the holiday. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know how they get out of this. It seems like a tailspin <laughs> they can't escape. I think they just need to get out there and do something bold, right? Like put something on film, make it grand. You're Disney for God's sake, but... Somehow they're stun locked. Like they just they can't do it. I, I don't I don't know what they're gonna stun do. Locked, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's what's interesting though is that they also just have a hard time attracting talent because uh, the way these films have been received, a lot of directors just don't want to mess with it, and they also feel you know the golden handcuffs, which has been described how it is working for Marvel, where it's like you're brought on, but you're told everything you will be doing. You don't have any say on like the script. Or that you're basically just a project manager making sure it gets done. And a lot of talented directors don't want to work like that. I know Ryan Johnson is going to be expensive. And I don't know for sure that's the direction you want to go in. Because obviously there's some fans that feel hurt by The Last Jedi. A film that has only aged better with time. Shout out to uh, our wonderful host, Andy, who called that the day it came out. And said it was really good stuff. Way before everybody else. Still can't believe it. Like calling his shot. The Babe Ruth of cinema. Uh, but my man still says he wants to do it. I like when it, when he finishes this deal with Netflix, when he gets done with whatever the next knives out film is, they need to sign him like day one, pay his fee, whatever it is. It's probably $2 billion or something and get that man to make three star Wars movies. Because I believe if anybody can run in a direction here, it's the guy who's actually interested in doing it. And that's Ryan Johnson. Like, I, I, I think that's a really strong direction Again, he says he really wants to, and I'm like, well, it seems like when he makes movies he wants to make, they're really good, a la Knives Out, Glass Onion, and the most recently Poker Face on Peacock. Let him do his thing, right? Let, let him cook. Maybe it'll be great. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I got too many buzzwords this week. Uh, <laughs> any other thoughts on this before we move into Creed 3, Andy? Uh, I, I think we're ready to move on, but man, Disney just has to figure it out, has to pick a direction, go with it. And, you know, I, I think there's, they're worried just too much about fan backlash and what do the fans want? What do the fans want? And what Disney used to do was tell you what you wanted. It, Disney used to define culture, define childhood experiences, and they didn't sit the, back and, and just say, well, what, will the audience like this or that? They're like, no, we're, we're going to create great properties and tell great stories. And, that's what they, they used to do. And it now seems like they're just so scared to pick a direction there. Like you said, they're stun locked. Yeah, they really are. Like they cannot get out of it. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, keep it on off script for more. Uh, with that being said, we're going to move into our first review of the episode. Uh, Andy's agreed to take the summary on this one. Andy, please uh, take it away. Creed three. No, we passed talking. Then maybe you just have to find out. So this is the follow-up to 2018's Creed II, uh, which starred Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson. He is now actually both starring and in the director's chair for the first time ever, his directorial debut. In the film, we find Adonis Creed several years after the events of the previous film. He has retired from boxing. He has put the gloves down. He is more of a businessman now. He's working behind the scenes. He's working with the current champ. He's trying to set up a fight, get people paid. He's in that very successful uh, kind of post-championship 
era when all of a sudden a ghost from his past comes back into his life in the form of Jonathan Majors, who plays Damien Dame Anderson. Uh, these The two were childhood friends who uh, kind of have a little bit uh, of a dark secret, and we find out that Damien has been in prison for the last 18 years or so, recently got out, and what Creed, uh, or what Adonis initially thinks is like, well, he he's asking for a handout. He wants, you know, he wants some money because, and he, he's, uh, he says, no, I don't want that. I want a shot at the title. He's like, I've kept myself in shape, kept up my skills. I want a shot. And initially, uh, Adonis says, no, we, we can't do that. You know, you're a nobody, you're old, you're over the hill. Like, uh, you, you got to get some fights under your, your belt. Um, but Jonathan Majors is just so intimidating. He keeps leaning, keeps pressing, and he's like, no, I really want a shot, and you want, it's in your best interest for me to get a shot at this title. One thing leads to another. Eventually, these events transpire, and it leads Adonis to get back, take up the mantle, put on the gloves, and get back into the ring to defend his title, defend himself, his family, uh, from the desires of Jonathan Majors' character. So that's... That's the movie. Uh, That's our setup. Zach, what'd you think? So I need to be objective about Creed 3 because Creed 3 seems to be, at least from early reviews and from what I've heard, very well received. Uh, This movie has made $100 million opening weekend uh, uh, across the world, which is great. I think it was $58 million here in the U.S. and $42 million uh, overseas. Uh, we saw it together uh, Sunday, and that theater was nearly full for like a midday Sunday show. Like it was, it, it was, it was hopping, baby. People are going to see Creed three, and from what it seems like, everybody likes it. But I have not seen many Rocky movies. I'm pretty sure I've seen the first <laughs> one. I did not see Rocky two through five. I did not see Rocky Balboa. I don't think I ever saw Creed one, and I'm sure I never saw Creed two. So jumping from Rocky one to Creed three, I had some drastically different expectations about what was going to happen here. And I ended up disappointed. I had like reverse hype train problem. I really thought it was going to go one way and it totally doesn't. And that's totally okay because it seems like people like this film. There's good stuff to be had here. Personally, I was a little dashed, which bums me out, but I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, what's the best place to jump in? You, you've seen these movies, right? You've seen Creed one and two. Yeah, I've, I've seen the first two Creed films and I've seen basically all all the rocky films used to watch they used to come on tv all the time in in the 90s where you know i i've seen rocky three and four probably a hundred times uh some really classic uh scenes uh for me this movie really worked i I think in the way it was told because it was it wasn't until afterwards that i realized there were kind of a number of narrative flaws or things that don't really work but in the moment i was really with it just because of the the style and like the style, the visuals, the cinematography, the music, the score, everything really worked for me. And I just went along for the ride. And I think it's a very good uh, initial film from director Michael B. B. Jordan. Uh, but let's go ahead and start with uh, with our, our, our plot. Uh, what kind of doesn't work for you, for you Zach? So... <laughs> first off, I can't, I can't wander into spoiler territory because we don't do that on this show. But uh, I think... I the reason I haven't watched a lot of Rocky movies is because the formula feels particularly rote, right? Like you got your champ at the beginning of the movie who's basically already the champ, save for Rocky one or Creed one. Uh, Or or I guess Rocky Balboa because his son kind of comes in, right? But even then, I think Rocky still fights. Uh, some kind of challenger approaches the champ. They have, there's something about this challenger that makes them particularly alluring. Champ decides to fight them. Training montage at the end of Act 2. Act 3 is the big fight, right? Like, that's what you're getting. And I just kind of figured it was going to be a little different. I was admittedly very charmed by Jonathan Majors, who is tremendous in this movie. Also, Michael B. Jordan. Both of them fantastic. They're both really good stuff, man. Like, both guys... Firing on all cylinders. Uh, I've read since that they want to continue working together, which is tremendous. They want to make more features. Both huge talents. Both great on screen. And Majors is so intimidating in this movie, man. He's got those dead eyes. And like for the first chunk of the movie, as you've seen in the trailer, he befriends Jordan. They're old friends, right? He he, he comes to Adonis Creed. He says, "Hey, man, I just got out of the joint. I need a help. I need some help, right? I need a I need a hand." And and. Creed wants to help him out because he's a good dude and everybody likes Creed. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I can, I can help you out. I, I can do that. But then suddenly this gets turned on its head and it turns out that Jonathan Majors is not only wanting a shot, uh, he's, he's coming for Creed's spot. Like that's the issue. 
And suddenly this turns from a friendship into a pretty brutal rivalry. And I was really charmed by the allure of that. And then when I actually saw the film, I come to find out like it's a little flatter than that. And it feels much more like the traditional Rocky formula than I guess what I thought was going to be kind of more of an independent idea. Like it really does just fall back into the spot of champ is doing his thing. Guy shows up, challenges champ training montage. Then they fight like, <laughs> and, and I hate the movie. And I told this to you and Matt, who is a good friend of the show. It works I, so well. Yeah. And oh, y'all, y'all both are like, what did you think this is going to be? Like, I don't know. I haven't seen the other eight Rocky movies. Like I just kind of <laughs> figured it was going to be something different and it's fine. It's fine. Because again, audiences love it. People clearly eat this stuff up, but boy, like coming in with a fresh face, I was just kind of like, I just felt, I was just a little bummed in the spirit of it. So it does rush things a little bit because in boxing you, you gotta you can't just fight the champ you have to build up a record you gotta fight ten fifteen people um, usually be undefeated and then you know eventually you can may, maybe uh, be a ch- be a challenger and a lot of these events kind of happen a little too fast oh uh, overnight and there's there's not enough kind of expect expecting this uh, kind of there's not enough fight in this rivalry because uh, in the trailer, uh, Jonathan Majors has this great line. He's like, imagine what it's like watching someone else live your life, like get everything that was supposed to c- come to you. Um, but it, but it's just n- not well thought through enough. He doesn't have enough like uh, motivation really other than to just kind of be there. But he, he, is, he isn't the villain. He's just kind of the antagonist that's kind of a little bit misguided and i think that's why he's so good he reminds me if you've ever had like a problematic family member or like old childhood friend it's like well you don't really want to be around them but you can't really tell them to go away either either um so like a little bit like that because he, he spent his life in prison he's real real rough around the edges prone uh prone to violence and and it's i think he does a great job but uh we could have gotten even more out of his character than we did it's still that said he's still head and shoulders above what he did in in Ant Man just a couple of week weeks ago, and that shows what I said on the in that movie. I said he's great. That script is really weak, it, and this movie shows what he can do. It is wild that uh, currently Jonathan Majors is the antagonist in the top one and two films at the box office, uh, Creed three and Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. Right, like he's fundamentally not really the bad guy, but basically, you know, he's he's the antagonistic force in both of those features. Uh, and I think he's great. My man needs a leading role fast. Like, I'm ready for it. God, he's great in Lovecraft Country. He's great in these movies. I need I need to see him doing more. And I know he's got that movie magazine, Dreams Coming. But I want to talk about the directing for a minute. Michael B. Jordan, obviously, taking a first seat in the director's chair. I believe he was doing some kind of assistant directing, uh, first unit directing, on the previous feature, I know he's working closely with Ryan Coogler on Creed 1 to kind of learn more about the process. And for what it's worth, like Michael B. Jordan's Creed 3 is pretty solid. I, I like that it's grounded. Lots of handheld shots make everything feel very tangible and very real, right? They give everything a feeling of motion. And Jordan's got a really good knack for the fight scenes because even the stuff that you know what's going to happen it still feels like pulpy and good. I mean, you can see the trailer and see these two guys facing off at the end of the movie. So when uh, 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 Dame Anderson, uh, Jonathan Major's character, is on the come up and he's got to win a couple fights to get there, you can already kind of predict he's probably going to win because we know that the big matchup at the end of the movie is the two of these guys. So even going in knowing Jonathan Majors is going to win this fight against, you know, Faceless Fighter C or B, uh, it's still good stuff. Like it's still exciting to watch those, those hits come in. It feels fast. It feels pulpy. Like the fight scenes are heart pounding like them or not. Even if you know, it's going to work the stuff where it slows down, I think is the drama because ja- Michael B. Jordan has not quite worked out how to really step on the gas when it comes to suspense, how to pull that tension on screen and hold it for a minute and like really make you feel like you don't know where things are going to go. Uh, it's really obvious quickly in this film that he doesn't quite drag out emotional tension far enough for things to really feel like they're going to matter. Uh, early in the film, we get a flashback scene uh, with young uh, uh, Adonis Creed, Michael B. Jordan's character, and he gets in a fight with the man outside of a liquor store. And the fight happens so fast, I thought, oh, well, they, they must have some kind of beef from the previous movies. 
Because like it, it just it just like he goes from calm to a hundred and ten super quick. Now he's a young kid, right? And he's obviously got a hot streak, so maybe that's attributed to that. But on screen, you don't see it. It just goes from zero to a hundred super fast. Uh, there's another scene with a family member in here where there's some some strong emotion like pulling one way, and it happens so quickly. Like it basically is like a phone call and then a cut to the next scene, and we're right in the middle of like a super serious situation. Like he doesn't really feather that at all. Like he kind of just goes from A to B and that starts to make some of this film, at least the drama, feel a little paint by numbers. But I think that's really redeemed in the fight, man. Like, cause the fights are good stuff. Uh, you talked about his, his uh, anime trappings. Michael B. Jordan's an anime fan <laughs> and it comes out. I, one of the things that's obvious is that a lot of times, a, I was watching a great interview with him earlier. Uh, a lot of times in anime, in anime shows, uh, characters fight out in the middle of nowhere. Because they have to express themselves, they have to communicate through fighting. And Jordan actually has a really clever way of bringing that into this movie. Something you're not going to see in the trailers. you got to go watch it to find out. Um, it actually plays really good. In a smaller movie, I would have thought, oh, they're cutting the CGI budget. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're moving the fight. But in this one, like, it feels artful and it feels thoughtful. And like I think is a first-time outing from Jordan, uh, rock-solid entry, I, clearly. I mean, he's doing great. Yeah. Uh, to piggyback off the fight scenes, they're phenomenal in this movie, and they're better than I think the first two Creed films. Because a lot of times in boxing movies, the thing that's usually the worst is the boxing itself, uh, the portrayal of it. Uh, the attention to detail is much better. The fights feel real fast and tight, and just kind of like more of what you would see in a boxing match. It is still very Hollywood in that our our protagonists and antagonists take a bunch of punishment like in a real fight you can take like one or two big hits and that that might end in the fight that might end in the round um in this our, our our heroes are getting slugged left and right uh kind of a lot but it's still so well choreographed and the training stuff looks good i mean like michael b jordan looks like like the real deal he looks like he he could do this really trained uh hard for it and that's kind of what i think works better or is done even better than the first two creed films zach won't know this but in the, in the second one there is a, a fight scene that looks like it's all in one take. And it's a really cool kind of camera. It's, I don't think it's in one take, but it's, meant, it's cut to look, look yeah. that way. Um, and so we also get a, a lot of really good, interesting cinematography and camera work in this. Um, I also mentioned, wanted to mention, we have some supporting characters. It's B-plot stuff. Uh, Tessa Thompson's character, Bianca, is, is back. Uh, she is had progressive hearing loss through the previous two films. And she's now kind of at the point where she's had to retire from her career as a musician. She's working behind the scenes as, as a producer, but can't, can't really perform. Uh, they ha now have uh, a young daughter named Amara who is also uh, deaf. And so uh, sign language is a, is a big part of, of the film. I, I heard a really great interview with Michael B. Jordan where he talked about, the hands of, of a boxer in, in this film being used both for language and love as well as like pain and punishment. Um, but those are some other kind of things that are going on in the background of the movie. Yeah. I, I thought the supporting cast was fine. Uh, one of the things I, I noticed here before we wrap up, cause I know we need to move through it. Um, I was surprised at how like high of a pedestal, Adonis is on in this movie. And like, I listen, I know by like Rocky, by like Rocky three, right? Like Rocky Balboa is the king of Kings. Like, Oh my God, nobody can topple him. I don't expect him to be living in a, in, in like a shack house or anything, but He's like, like my Rocky's God, in like <laughs> Rocky's like in a Ferrari by like the third or fourth one. Yes. Right. And like Adonis <laughs> Creed is in the same boat. Like the freaking mansion he lives in is so absurd. They had to green screen the exteriors to like put it together. Cause it just is so unreal. Like I have one time, a long time ago, uh, not to, not to name drop on the podcast. I'm about to, but for example, I kept thinking, uh, I, one time I went to Tony Romo's house here in Dallas. Uh, and Tony Romo is, you know, a pretty big deal. He's not, he's not the king of football or anything, but for what it's worth, Adonis Creed's house makes Tony Romo's house look like a freaking shack. And Tony Romo's house is the <laughs> nicest house I've ever, it probably will ever be in, in my life. Like it's insane. And, and like this, and, and, and when Jonathan Major's character comes in from, from, from prison, right? Like he lives in this crappy apartment with like one dim bulb light and like a crappy window and busted blinds. And like the whole movie, I feel like just punches down on him constantly. 
And Adonis Creed is constantly in the ivory tower. Literally, his signature color is is white shorts, white ring, everything. Like I I I don't I don't say ivory tower lightly. Like it is looking the whole movie is looking up at him like he's a god. And I just kind of thought I don't know. I I thought there was going to be some evening here, or maybe even Jonathan Majors would get one over on him. And come the end of the movie. Things play out as they play out, but I was just surprised that like almost the whole feature, Adonis Creed is functionally a god, like that cannot be offset. <laughs> and like I, I don't know, I just felt like that was a little coming into it fresh. I was like, this just feels like, I don't know, too proud, too too much clout. Like I just, I, and I, I was hoping he'd get knocked down yeah, a peg he, or something. He, he's kind of missing a little bit of that like character flaw that all are. Pro, that a good protagonist uh, is going to need, especially contrast from the first film where he's like, he moves to Philadelphia and he's like living with Rocky in his like dilapidated apartment to like be able to train with him. So it's like miles and miles away from that, which also reminds me, Buster Stallone and Rocky's character, Rocky is not in this film Notably. at all. Yes. Uh, if not, I don't even know if it's, uh, mentioned even in in passing uh so there's some real ugliness behind the screen it's not between michael b jordan and sylvester stallone but between uh what is it erwin Erwin winkler producer uh who who owns who bought the rights to rocky way back when stallone wrote it in the 70s uh stallone lost the rights back then and he's been fighting to get him back ever since and at some point it was decided that they were going to phase out uh stallone's character yes um and that got real ugly it was never worked out, but that's why like Sylvester Sloan is very blatantly absent from this movie. Notably absent. Yeah. I, as, as, as far as I can remember, I was driving home from the movie thinking about, it. I think he's mentioned once when Jonathan majors is trying to get this fight and, and Creed's like, it, I don't, I don't think I can make that happen, man. Like you're not even a rookie. You're nobody, right? Like, you're just off the street. Like I can't put you in a title fight with somebody. But then when he finally kind of gets things going and says, you know what? I'm going to give you a shot, kid. He says, he says, everybody loves an underdog story. He's like, look at, look at Rocky V Apollo, right? Like everybody remembers that. I think that's the only time in the film his name is mentioned that I can think of. And then you get, you do get a bit of the Rocky music at the end, which I think uh, Creed one does that. They don't even, they like, they hold the theme like right till the end of the movie. And then they like swing it on the victory, which is great. Um, yeah, they really hold back, and it's a little weird knowing on on the on the on the back end. Like, definitely, Slice Stallone's got some problems with this. But his movie, his name's in the credits, right? Based on characters created by Sylvester Stallone. Like, I I don't know what kind of bad blood is there, but notably absent. <sighs> yeah, Stallone was definitely the victim of just like young Hollywood success. He didn't know any better. Signed his his life over without really knowing. Um, and he's still paying for it 50 years later. Yeah. <laughs> you can find, you can find Sly Stallone in the Expendables five, uh, coming to theaters <laughs> at some point. Uh, and, uh, God good Samaritan, the Amazon movie we covered on this oh, show. Oh God, Samaritan is so bad. Oh, that should have made my list of, of worst. And <laughs> I forgot about Sam- it. Yeah. It's cause it was so forgettable. Yeah. Uh, Samaritan, uh, covered that a while back. Go, go back and check out our old episodes if you want to hear it. Uh, with that being said, Andy, any other thoughts on this one before we uh, move on to recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Creed 3? I would for fans of the franchise. I had a really good time. I've watched the other two. I liked the first Creed. I didn't like the second one quite as much. I thought this one was kind of the best of the three, at least in terms of style and and presentation. I really got into, into, like I said, the cinematography, the music, the score, the the drama. Um, I, I think Michael B. Jordan has made a really great first film and i'd be excited to see what what else he brings to the screen but i i would say strongly recommend see it in theaters if you're excited about it i think i'm kind of in the same boat like objectively if you're a creed fan like i I think you're gonna have a good time with this if even you just like kind of sports drama you're probably gonna have a good time with this one like it's well shot it's well made great soundtrack looks fantastic and this rivalry between these two characters is really good stuff but like personally, dude, I'm I'm probably not even gonna go see Creed Four. Like I did not get a lot out of this. Um, I it's fine like for me, but like I think because I lack so much of the previous like work, um, I don't know. Yeah, I got to the end of it and just like kind of felt nothing. <laughs> it's like I like that. Like the talent is on screen and it looks great. Majors is great. Michael B. Jordan's great. 
but just in the realm of like the, the, the formula, right? Like the, the Rocky Creed formula, like it just, it just felt a little rote to me, but that's personal. Again, like, I think if you like this stuff, if you like the other movies, you're going to like it. Audiences love it. Critics love it. I'm this weird uh, outlier that was overhyped for the wrong reasons. So don't listen to me. Listen to Andy. Go see Creed 3. It's good stuff. I think you'll like it. Uh, and with that, we should move into uh, our next segment. We got some exciting trailers to talk about. Uh, Andy, what do we what do we call this? It's time for the trailer park. So we got a few trailers to come your way. A lot of stuff's come out the last few weeks. We managed to whittle it down to... Uh, uh, a smallish list, but we're going to start with The Pope's Exorcist, which is this new religious horror film uh, starring Russell Crowe as uh, it, it, he has the most Italian name ever here. He's uh, Father Gabriel Amorth. Uh, might as well call him Italian, Italia, Italiano Italian. Uh, and he is he is the Pope's exorcist. That's right. He specializes in exorcism. Um, eventually comes face to face with some sort of child who who's possessed, and uh, in in the quest of trying to exorcise this child, there's some deep dark secret that the Vatican is is hiding that is also going to be explored. The trailer kind of gives away the whole movie. We have the great Franco Nero, who who famously played Django in the '60s, uh, is the the Pope here. Uh, and this movie just looks ridiculous. Like the the trailer is so it's kind of over the top. And like possession movies, religious horror is kind of a thing of the past. I don't find it particularly scary at all. Um, and it just looks laughable. And, and it looks like Russell Crowe's just sitting back collecting paychecks. <laughs> I think if the if the budget for the Pope's Exorcist is right, this movie will make a little bit of money. I, honestly, I think if you put The Exorcist on top of any horror title and put it in theaters. You're making like 15 mil at the door. Like I, I, at least domestically, it doesn't even have to be that good. I think people will just go see it simply because of the hype of the old exorcist. Right. And also horrors in a really good spot right now. My God, it feels like anything, any horror movie will make some money. So why not? Right. Like I think people get a kick out of going to see Russell Crowe and he's right. He is totally getting the bag. He does not, he's not, not thinking too hard about what script he's, scripts he's accepting. At least it seems to me. So Good on Russell Crowe. Uh, the next trailer we're going to talk about is actually a twofer. <laughs> we talked about this before the show. I don't really see the need to talk about these separately since they're both kind of similar. Two features from Disney. Number one, uh, Haunted Mansion. And number two, Peter Pan and Wendy. Uh, Haunted Mansion is, of course, an adaptation of The Ride, uh, The Haunted Mansion at Disney. Uh, stars Rosario Dawson as a single mom named Gabby who moves into a mansion with her son, finds out it's haunted, and hires a rogues gallery of actors, a, a, a tour guide, a psychic, a priest, and a historian to help her exercise their newly bought mansion. Uh, cast includes, God, Owen Wilson, Lakeith Stanfield, Danny DeVito... Tiffany Haddish, Hassan Minaj, uh, they got a bunch of good people in there. J Jamie Lee Curtis, Winona Ryder, Jared Leto. Uh, and they are going to be a kind of goofy figuring out the Haunted Mansion thing. Uh, and then for uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, uh, the only really interesting thing about talking about this one is this is David Lowry's new feature. Uh, it's the live action Peter Pan adaptation. Previously, Lowry did uh, Pete's Dragon for Disney. And now uh, we know him most recently from The Green Knight, which Andy and I both absolutely adored. Um, when we went and saw David Lowry's Q&A at the Texas Theater for the film, he talked about shooting this movie in the Netherlands. Now it is coming out and it looks fine. Uh, Jude Law plays Hook. I don't really know anybody else that's in it. It's mostly kids, of course. Was that who that was? I couldn't. Um... Yes. Okay. <laughs> It's Jude Law. And for what it's worth, I do think Peter Pan and like the Netherlands is mildly interesting. Anytime I've ever seen the Neverland, it's been in the Caribbean, right? It's been some kind of like islands or like these big scraggly rocks a la Green Knight, right? Like very similar. Um, but if anything I've heard about these movies is both of them look way too dark uh, visually. The lighting's terrible. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy is going straight to Disney Plus, which is a bummer. I know Lowry wanted that to go to theaters. That's what we got. Haunted Mansion and Peter Pan and Wendy coming from Disney. Yeah, uh, both of these are, are not exciting for, for me. Haunted no. Mansion. Well, it, Haunted Mansion didn't really kind of tell us what the, like, any kind of story or plot is about. There's just, like, a bunch of people showing up at a, you know, a PG-level haunted house, which ties in with the Disney ride. It, it's trying to capture the magic that Pirates of the Caribbean did, 
um, way back in the day, but it's just from that teaser definitely doesn't have me excited. I'm also not the target audience. I'm an adult man. It's true. Uh, Peter Pan and Wendy. It looks okay. Some of the CGI looks kind of bad. Uh, definitely looks like they cheaped out on, on some of it. Uh, this is something I'm more willing to watch though, because love David Lowry, love his work, uh, of, you know, he's, he does, he's definitely the epitome of one for them, one for me, uh, his personal work. That's not Disney, uh, is phenomenal. And then I've heard good things about Pete's dragon as well, but I, I would definitely watch this because he's one of the directors. Of Following up, we have, uh, how to blow up a pipeline. And I hope I don't end up on any kind of list. Uh, <laughs> This is, yeah. I, I just, this just came out this week. Um, and this is an independent film uh, about a, a group of kind of eco activists who decide to take some very drastic me- measures and try and blow up an actual oil pi- pipeline. And they're serious about it. They're, they're, they're planning, they're gathering bomb making materials. They're, you know, planning to, to do this to, you know, make an impact. And say, like, you know, we're, we're, we'll show them they're vulnerable. And just the, the the sheer scope and the audacity of that, and being and just approaching environmentalism that way is very extreme. And uh, obviously, everything will probably go wrong. But that's that's why this looks really brilliant. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's really low budget. Uh, it's a it's a really small cast of of mostly unknowns or people who have worked in a couple of things, and one of the leads. Uh, was on New Girl. One of the leads was in Prey on Hulu. Uh, it's directed by a, a director, Daniel Goldhaber, who hasn't done much. Coming out April 7th. And yeah, I, I like that it looks so small. Lots of film grain. It's uh, I think being put up by Neon, almost like an A24 joint. And frankly, uh, radical environmentalism makes for a pretty rad script because you get that political thriller of is this good or bad? And also uh you have to question your character's moral morals while also seeing them try to build bombs to blow up a pipeline which is like it, it's a good script man like i can get into that i know it's based on a book um i don't know i it, it seems kind of neat like I, I think how to blow up a pipeline might be rad uh i mean it, it reminds me of something like american animals where it's just like a group of young idealistic uh people try to really do something that they, they think in their minds is, is right. And, um, it's, it's like got disaster spelled all over, all over it. I'm yes. super excited for that. Characters doing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, right thing for the wrong reasons, wrong thing for the right reasons, I guess, whatever. Uh, that's good stuff, man. Like that's, and, and it sounds radical. It sounds new. Like, okay, that that's a movie I can get behind. Uh, uh, Zach, why don't you take this next one? Yes. Uh, last film we need to talk about is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. So we heard some rumblings about this on Twitter before we got an official trailer uh, just not that long ago. And really, it's more of a teaser, but it's like, you know, 93 seconds, and that's pretty good. Uh, this is an animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film starring a rogues gallery of villains, uh, including Seth Rogen, Paul Rudd, Rose Byrne. Uh, God, I, I'm not even sure who else in my head. Uh, as the bad guys, but then our turtles are phenomenally young child slash teen actors, including like the lead voice of Cartoon Network's Gumball and a couple of shows. I don't know. April O'Neil is super young. Uh, we have a a cast of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles who are very much teenage. They're like they're like thirteen. Like they are young turtles in this movie doing stupid stuff. And we haven't gotten a lot of look at the villains, but we know that they're a pretty outstanding cast of bad guys. So for what it's worth, I'm sure we're going to get a full trailer of something more exciting soon. But we've got animation uh, similar to uh, the, the visual trappings of like the DreamWorks' recent Post and Boots, The Last Wish. Uh, it's it's radically different, like uh, kind of uh, the bad guys, I think, was that animated film they made or even something like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Like, I like this blend of, like, 3D and 2D animation that comes off looking really distinct and really interesting and isn't just, like, flat garbage. And for what it's worth, like, of those teens in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, many of them are talented teenagers who have voiced good comedy roles. So for what it's worth, it seems like it's going to be good. Produced by Seth Rogen, who's got a pretty outstanding track record of, what, Superbad, Invincible on Amazon Prime, The Boys on Amazon Prime, and now this, along with a few other pro- few other projects, I don't know, man. Like th- this might be a good Turtles movie. 
Yeah, I'm kind of excited for this. And again, this is definitely aimed at, at a young audience, but the, the art style is really cool. It's very reminiscent of uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse while still being its its own thing, but very kind of different uh, approach to animation. And it's got a stellar voice cast, which includes, this is a long list, Paul Rudd, Giancarlo Esposito, Rose Byrne, Jackie Chan, Seth Rogen, John Cena, Maya Rudolph, Ice Cube, and more. Like it's this really impressive uh, cast of characters, and it it just looks like good, clean, like kid fun. And, and people forget, like the, people take the turtle stuff a little bit too seriously sometimes. Like it is very much a kids franchise. Teenage is in is in the name. Uh, this looks, uh, I think, pretty good, and it's going to be coming out this summer. Yeah, uh, I think it might be good stuff. Uh, but speaking of vicious animals we need to talk about our last film <laughs> of the s terrible segue last film of the episode uh this is an odd feature let me tell you it's not something i would normally go see if it wasn't for this podcast but every once in a while we get pulled to something that's a bit more surprising than what we expected and i'm excited to say i think that's exactly what this movie is from first time director elizabeth banks the movie is cocaine bear a bear did cocaine what? So Cocaine Bear is, I would say, at first a comedy thriller. Uh, actually, having seen it, it might lean more into horror. Uh, it is the story yeah. of a 1983 cocaine heist gone wrong uh, when, uh, following a, a, a transferring of drugs across the country via plane uh, and the plane going down, uh, all of the cocaine is ejected from the plane in, in duffel bags. Uh, this falls into the woods in uh, Chattahoochee, Tennessee. I think uh, I assume that's a fictional forest, maybe not. Uh, and and uh, some of the cocaine is found by a group of criminals, tourists, teens, cops who all converge on this forest where they ultimately find out that there is one black bear in particular who's ingested some of this exciting drug and is ready to eat everybody in their sight to get more of it. Uh, the movie is from Elizabeth Banks, who you would formerly know from a variety of features as an actress. This is her first time directing. Uh, it is a comedy, is a thriller, also stars uh, Alden Ehrenreich, uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and Carrie Russell. Oh, and Ray Liotta with late performance, uh, along with a few others. Uh, also worth mentioning, in a very small role, as Carrie Russell's daughter, Dee Dee, is Brooklyn Prince, who I couldn't place... Uh, she is the lead lead actress, child actress in the Florida Project, and she's great in that movie. <laughs> I wish she'd gotten more time in this because she was very young. It's a great job. Uh, but here we are. Uh, this is Cocaine Bear. Andy, what'd you think? Well, first off, uh, small correction: uh, Elizabeth Banks has directed several films. She's has she really? At least four fe features. Her, her last one was the Charlie's Angels remake, which did not go over. Well, oh, but she's also God, done. You're right. Yeah. Hit uh pitch perfect too yes she has um, oh yeah so, you're right pitch but, perfect too yeah that's true <laughs> but any anyways uh i thought this was a, a lot of fun it looks like an absurd absurdist com comedy w which it is but there's also no way that the movie could live up to the trailer because the tra trailer is kind of like, like just stupendous and it's got this incredible title as well uh, I definitely like the first half uh, of the film when we, we kind of get our, our setup. And we have a number of cast of characters. We have the folks looking for cocaine in the forest. We have the bear getting <laughs> who ingested. Yeah. We have the park park ranger and family who's uh you know you know responsible for the park. Then we have the this family led by Carrie Russell and her daughter who are kind of the two her, her daughter and, and friend get lost in the woods we got a number of people running around and this is kind of where, where the setup is most interesting and apparently this is very 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 loosely based on facts the facts are that uh cocaine was dumped out of a cessna plane in in the 80s uh, the plane was crashing and uh whoever was on board threw out all, all the drugs they also jumped out and died because their parachute didn't <laughs> didn't open that part is real uh it was discovered that a bear did ingest uh you know, a brick of it or, or whatever. It did not go on a killing spree of any kind, but you know, the imagination took root in, in this scenario. Uh, but like I said, to me, the most fun is in the beginning. We get fun segments with Ray Liotta, Alden Ehrenreich character act as Margot Martindale, uh, is, is a lot of fun as well as, as this, uh, park ranger who takes her job very seriously. He has a gun 
<laughs> for, for who, who knows why. There's also the inept police department trying to collect uh, the drugs and come after everyone well. So I, I think the most fun is in the first half. Yeah, I think Cocaine Bear, the thing Cocaine Bear, the thing this movie does best is create uh like nuanced characters with interesting silhouettes, right? Like everybody stands on their own two feet as a character. Everybody from Alden Ehrenreich, who is this very sad son of a drug dealer who's just lost his love to cancer and is like not feeling good, but now has to go out to the woods to find this stuff, which he does not want to do. And his sidekick played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., who is just over listening to him cry about this stuff and can't stand it anymore. Uh, to Margo Martindale as this park ranger. Yeah, to even like the ambulance drivers who show up halfway through the movie, right? One of which played by Scott Seiss uh, from TikTok, who's uh, surprisingly good in this movie. Uh, the problem I have with this is uh, Cocaine Bear <laughs> kind of ruthlessly murders most of them. Uh, and it's not at least for me, like it wasn't that funny. It was just kind of sad because the movie does such a good job of making these people at least visually and, and kind of stylistically distinct that when it just brutally murders one of them, like a bear on cocaine would, it's not funny. I just feel bad. <laughs> and that's what it does for 95 <laughs> minutes. Like it, it, unfo- it misses that one thing. Like it's a shame. Yeah. It's almost more like, uh, like I said, a horror comedy, uh, where the bear is like the slasher and everyone else is, is the victim. Because there's a lot of, uh, pardon the pun, grisly kills that happen yeah. uh, all through. And they're pretty uh, graphic. And it was, it was funny because I, I was watching, I was sitting next to an older couple watching the film. And the, the woman was very much like, oh, this is so gross. I don't know why we came to see this. And like the, her husband was just like, <laughs> he was loving it. He was absolutely <laughs> loving it all the the gratuitous violence but it it is it's more of a, a horror comedy than like an action comedy because it, it does have a lot of those grotesque horror elements yeah elizabeth banks cited uh one of her inspirations for this film was steven spielberg's jaws right like the idea of this rampant angry monster this animal that's in its own territory right like that would be doing its own thing otherwise that is intruded upon by outsiders and does what it basically normally do but plus cocaine right plus a drug that makes you aggravated and then okay sure right gives you a bunch of energy i get that but like i I couldn't help when watching this movie but think about like another film that was directly inspired by steven spielberg's jaws that we saw last year nope from jordan peele And, like, one of those, like, genuinely leans into, like, the stylistic Spielbergian trappings of, like, the inspired voyeurism of seeing something grand and majestic, if only for a moment, right? Trying to capture that in your own way. And the other is, like, mindless, ridiculous violence for 95 minutes. And out of the two, like, Note manages to thread that needle in such a more interesting and fascinating way than Cocaine Bear. And the box office speaks for itself. I understand it's Jordan Peele's third feature, but for what it's worth, this is also Elizabeth Banks' third feature. And I just couldn't help but feel like this one runs into problems, at least in Act 2, because like Andy said, the beginning of it works pretty good. It's got to set up these characters, right? You, you've got your drug dealers. You got the son of the drug dealer who's heading out there to figure out his thing. You got the, the the mom who's looking for her daughter who just went out to the woods so she could paint a picture of the waterfall right at noon because she's an artist. You got uh, some tourists that are out there, the, the, the hapless park ranger who doesn't know what's going on, uh, the wildlife expert, the, the cops that show up who are looking for the drug dealers. Like All of that creates like this it's a mad, 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 mad world or like rat race esque, like cast of characters who all come into the woods and are perfect cannon fodder for the bear. But like by act two, your cast is starting to dwindle and the, the, the gag is kind of exactly what it was going to be from the trailer. And what it should have carried it through was like the comedy trappings, right? Like that's what worked about a feature like violent night starring David Harbor. Of course, the gag is in the trailer, but then you go see it and the script is so tight that you're like, oh man, this is actually really good and gives our cast a lot to work with. And unfortunately, writer Jimmy Warden does not bring that to Cocaine Bear. Previously, he did The Babysitter on Netflix, uh, and that's about all he's done. And it ends up being a pretty weak script, I think, and that really does hurt it. It's just not that funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it. Um, what that's a great comparison to um violent night where you 
you have to build up and you have to have a great climax with something like this. And the, I feel like that kind of happens at the midpoint. Like, and th- I find this happens with a lot of movies actually where the midpoint's the most exciting part and the climax is a bit of a letdown. That kind of happens here where it doesn't really know where to go after a lot of the initial exciting, funny, brutal moments. It just, you got this weird plot with Carrie Russell trying to find her kids that goes on a little bit too long. You got the cops running into the dr- drug dealers and having a little bit of a standoff. And then you got the bear there at, at points. It kind of doesn't know what to do after about the first hour. Um, luckily, it's not super long, but but that's where it needed a, a better finish. Like it doesn't stick the landing. No, unfortunately not. Uh, it's not all bad though. I think quality performances are here. Alden Ehrenreich is so funny, dude. Like in his first scene when he's like crying yeah. at the bar eating panne pasta and he had a tattoo with his girlfriend's name on it it's spelled wrong. Like he manages to elevate what's like kind of just a lame role into something like genuinely funny and he keeps it running throughout. Like, God, that kid needs more work. Carrie Russell is the mom, is really good. Ray Liotta and what I, as far as I know is his final performance. God, they must have shot this like weeks before he passed. Like I, and he, and he's, He's not like Harrison Ford sitting the whole time. Like he's up and moving in this movie. He's like moving around in the woods with a gun. Like he's got, he's got roles. O'Shea Jackson is funny. Isaiah Whitlock's funny. Uh, you know, it, like I, I think the performances here are, are pretty good. At least, at least like those few big ones. Otherwise like they're fine on the back end. Mo- most everybody else is pretty much just cannon fodder for the bear, right? Like you don't need them to do a whole lot. Right, it, exactly. This is where it, it's cool that there's a, a lot of people and there are, it's almost like there's a, a lot of good sketches set up, but it just, it doesn't kind of create a good overarching narrative. And and, it, and it's a shame because we do have great characters. Like you said, Alden Ehrenreich, he's, he's given this movie way more of a performance than it deserves. Uh, same thing with, with Ray, Ray Liotta. I think he did film a couple of other movies before he passed. Imagine if that was your final movie was Cocaine Bear. God, let me look. Hold um, on. I got IMDb. So up. Let me check. It, oh, got, you're right. Yeah, he's got, got a, three a, films coming out. Wow. <laughs> three more movies. That's insane. Oh, my God. When did he pass? Okay, so 2022. Okay, so he passed last year. I, I keep thinking he passed like pre-pandemic. And I'm like, how could he have more work coming down the pipeline? That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so... You you have a fun cast of characters, like I said, that's probably the most memorable part. But unfortunately, most of them get killed off pretty early, and then you don't have a lot of interesting people or situations kind of by the end. And it's one of those things like they didn't really know how to wrap it up, but they're just like just get it done because you know the bear is mauling people or what people are here to see. Right. <laughs> it 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 definitely winds back on like it's a simple thing, and I keep seeing people say. Like the best reviews I think I've seen of Cocaine Bear are people saying Elizabeth Banks knows what this movie is and it sticks to landing. And I'm like, I, I I didn't really feel that way. For a 95 minute feature, it felt a little long. The pacing's all over the place, like leading to what I think is probably the worst offender. Uh, in the third act, there's a flashback to minutes before to an event that we should have seen on screen, but inexplicably didn't. Characters talk about something that they saw and then it flashes back to what would have been literally minutes ago. That's something we should have just seen with them. But we like, it's just weird. Like the, 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 the climax ends up feeling like, I don't know, like a reshoot or something. Like it just, it starts strong and it's just kind of peters out and runs out of gas. But I think by the time you get to act three, but again, it's a really simple gag, right? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? What, it, what did I think cocaine bear was going to be? And I'm not sure, but uh, for a VFX bear, I suppose you could do worse. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, this film's set in 1983. It does not feel like it's set in 1983. They they try with like the outfits and the, the technology, clothes, yeah. but like it feels like it was shot three weeks ago. Like, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's like their lens choice or what, but it just does not feel like an old movie. It doesn't feel like it's set in the past at all. Right. I, I think that might have to do with the fact that it's in the forest. You know, you don't, you don't really have any eighties settings. Like you get away a, with a lot of ball or, yeah. or something like that. So I, I think that that's probably got a, a lot to do with it, but I, I agree. It could kind of be in any time period. Yeah. Like it could have been, it could have been set yesterday and we're fine. All the characters could have been like, Oh, we're out in the woods and our phones don't work. And it would have been the same movie. Like it would not have made a difference. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I think that's about all I got to say on Cocaine Bear. Any other thoughts or recommendations, Andy? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Cocaine Bear? 
I would to people that are, if you're really interested in, in it and want to just hang out and chill out, relax at the theater for an afternoon, I, th- I think it's a lot of fun. If you're a little iffy on it, maybe a little skeptical, save it for streaming. Like I said, it's a tight 90 minutes. It's not not too long. It's got a good first half, and then it kind of peters out, but we do get some a lot of fun moments and fun characters along the way. I think I might skip this one honestly uh, if it's on streaming you need something to watch go for it it's kind of funny it just did not did not hit it for me it did not did not tap my funny bone like i thought it might i was I've, I've been really inspired by violent night in a way like in in the low budget gimmick comedy since because i was pleased with how well that one did i thought this was going to be of that caliber and it's not it's 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 really simple like it, it is exactly what it says on the tin Cocaine bear, baby. Uh, wait for it to come to streaming and then tell us what you think. And if you want to tell us what you think, the best way to do that is to reach out to us via correspondence, which I'll explain in a minute after Andy tells us, what are we doing next week? So we're off next week because I'm traveling, but we will be back with our review of Scream 6, which comes out this Friday, March 10th, only in theaters. And also the 2023 Oscars, which are this Sunday, um, which is going to be going up against the Last of Us finale. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about those two movies and some other releases just uh, that you might need, need, want to be aware of. Uh, March 10th, this Friday, the other one is 65, the Adam Driver-led uh, action dinosaur thing. And then the following week, Shazam! Fury of the Gods comes out March 17th, also in theaters only. So that's what we have coming up on the show. And I know we're coming up on time, uh, but I just really quick, uh, do you think everything everywhere all at once is going to sweep the Oscars or is it going to be like some junk blowout? Everybody's going to be disappointed. I mean, what, where I I think it's going to be pretty strong. I don't think it will sweep everything. There's, there's talk of like, you know, if something starts to win a lot of things, people are like, well, it's won everything. So let's, let's give some awards to someone. So we'll, we'll see. I I think there's going to be a, I think it's going to have a huge night though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, anything can happen. Like we've had, we've had years when Christopher Nolan has like six noms and wins one, like just cause it has a lot of noms does not mean it's going to win just cause it's won a lot of awards and other shows like the globes and the spirit awards does not mean it's going to win. Uh, but that for what it's worth, everything everywhere has been having a lot of success at those award shows. Andy and I are both personal fans. Hopefully they pull it out. We're, we're hoping anyway, uh, if you want to check out our show, when we do it here in a couple weeks, you want to go back and listen to previous episodes. If you want to keep up with Oscar, the best way to do that, it's just subscribe. Subscribe to Offscript on your favorite podcasting platform. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartMedia, one of all those usual places. We're on Facebook where we live stream our show every Tuesday when we do them. Uh, right around 5 p.m. CST, 4.30 CST if you get in here early with us. Uh, we upload our archives to our YouTube channel. You can follow us over there. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the usual places. You can find our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, and you can send us correspondence to tell us what you think. Remember what you think about some upcoming features at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. If you do a good job, you might just read it on the show. Watch out. All right. You might be featured with your boys here on Offscript. Thanks for <laughs> listening. And from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. 